scripture scholars tell us that these three chapters, 13 through 15, can be read as three separate events, possibly written at three different times. In the Oxford Catholic Study Bible, Lawrence Boat explains that chapter 15 may be a very early account of the Exodus. In fact, it may be the earliest written text in the Bible. Chapters 13 and 14 expand on the relationship between God and his people as the escape from Egypt moves forward. If you were caught up in the breaking news at the end of chapter 12, where the Israelites were finally leaving Egypt, we visualize an enormous crowd hurrying away in case Pharaoh changes his mind. Remember, they grabbed their unleavened bread and their Egyptian neighbors harried them along, creating a real sense of dramatic urgency. This is a narrative that will leave any reader on the edge of his or her seat, even if they know how the story ends. So the Lord is leading these thousands of people away from hundreds of years of slavery and, but were there actually thousands of people? Rita Burns refers to the number 600,000 men, not counting women and children, as a gross exaggeration. Some scholars suggest that exaggerated numbers are meant to convey the message to readers from more populous times that they too are included in the Exodus. While the group may not have been quite so massive in numbers, it would still have been dramatic in the act of leaving all at the same time. Plus, they were not all Israelites. Many of the marginalized peoples who shared some aspects of the faith or were related to the households would have made up the crowd of mixed ancestry, noted in chapter 12, verse 38. The Exodus action comes to a grinding halt in chapter 13, while Moses and Aaron get more detailed instructions about how the Passover was to be commemorated in the future. But how are the Israelites doing? Are they making their way from Ramses to Succoth in good speed? And why the break in the action? Rita Burns notes that the priestly writer has interjected this consecration material at the beginning of chapter 13, right where we'd expect the action to pick up, as another one of those moments when we're reminded that action in scripture is less important than the development of our relationship with God who is being revealed through these events. It's important that we are reminded of the firstborn as a divine offering throughout the ancient world and how some ancient cultures actually followed through with the sacrifice of children, especially given the carnage that had just been wrought by the angel of death. And the reader can certainly make a literary link between the slayings of the firstborn Egyptians and their animals at Passover to this demand to consecrate the firstborn from a Lord who liberated his people the consecration becomes the divine offering, an important and deliberate sanctification that stands in place of the actual sacrifice. Brevard Childs writes in his commentary on Exodus that firstborn animals had this special sanctity simply by being born, making their dedication to some deity a special token of gratitude. In this case, the Israelites are out of Egypt. They've escaped. They have quite a bit to be grateful about. 
We also have a vocabulary shift here. In verse 2 of chapter 13, we read, Consecrate to me every firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the Israelites, whether of human being or beast, belongs to me. Which becomes a dedication demand in verse 12 with a ransom option. We don't normally think of a dedication event as involving the destruction of the person or monument being dedicated. In our contemporary society, the dedication of a memorial or a building or a ship is a ritual event that creates a mystique, linking the memory of some past event to the event being enacted in the present. It's a remembrance, but certainly not a sacrifice. That's what happens in verse 12. The dedication of the firstborn is to happen after the Israelites reach Canaan and is to serve as a perpetual reminder of the Exodus event. This makes God and his presence in the lives of his people constant and immediate whenever a firstborn male arrives on the scene. There is still a bit of the sacrificial element present with the command to break the neck of any firstborn ass not redeemed with a sheep. Fortunately, he specified that the firstborn human males must be redeemed, not sacrificed. Note the repetition of phrases such as the strong hand of God and how sons are to be instructed about the reason for eating unleavened bread and the redemption of the firstborn. These are clearly teaching passages meant to instruct those in the proper celebration of rituals set down by the Lord. As contemporary readers, we understand the urgency of the moment in the detailed repetition and also the underlying need to acknowledge the overwhelming power of God as Redeemer, who was asking very little of his people in return for his great mercy. Refrain from eating leavened bread for seven days? It doesn't seem like much for being led out of slavery after 430 years, but the ritual is detailed and demands attention, which forces them to reflect on the reasons behind the ritual. In verse 7, they are told, unleavened bread may be eaten during the seven days, but nothing leavened, and no leaven may be found in your possession in all your territory. So it's not a simple matter of refraining from eating leavened bread. They cannot even have leaven with them for future baking, creating a more complex situation that bears reflection. Some food historians note that the Israelites and other slaves may have been fed unleavened bread during their captivity, as it takes longer to digest, and they would have required less food. We have to assume, then, that unleavened bread was a familiar concept to the Israelites because we know that they successfully baked the unleavened dough they brought with them in haste out of Egypt. They would have to stop less frequently to bake, and they would have been hungry less often, so there may have been a practical reason behind the prohibition on leaven. It was only after they were freed that the significance of unleavened bread became part of their ritual thanksgiving for their rescue. Perhaps the bread not only reminded them that they'd been captives who were freed by God, but that they were also lovingly captured in God's great mercy. 
these trusting people marched off into the desert behind a column of cloud during the day that became a column of fire at night. They don't seem to stop until we get to chapter 14 when they have to turn around, a clever military maneuver, and make camp. Given the unwieldy number of people who escaped with Moses, it could have taken some time for all of them to leave Egypt. Those at the front of the column may have been a day ahead of those at the rear, so turning back would have grouped everyone in a more compact place. One does wonder, though, what might have been going through the minds of those who circled back. God is present right there. He's with them as a constant reminder that he is guiding their escape and their eventual journey. But even those of abiding faith must have had a moment's doubt when they circled back, especially when Pharaoh's chariots and horses appeared on the horizon. Verses 10 and 11 wring our hearts even these many centuries later because the fear behind the Israelites' cries are so very human. Were there no burial places in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? God led them out of Egypt. After many signs and wonders, they were all allowed to leave, and the city's gates did not swing shut to cut off the stream of God's people. And yet, it seems more cruel to have brought them out only to have their journey end in death before it truly began. No wonder they were afraid. We read of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in chapter 14, verse 8, as he sends forth his chariots and horses and soldiers. And we read of the hardening of the Egyptians' hearts in verse 17, as God promises that he will receive glory through Pharaoh and all his army when the Israelites cross the middle of the sea on dry land. This seems a bit cryptic, even though we already know the ending of this episode. The Lord isn't promising to drown the soldiers and their horses, although we realize that's what will happen. Partly, he's continuing a process of self-revelation to a people whose faith had been shaken after 430 years in captivity. They needed persuasion by virtue of repeated messages and repeated events that would clearly define them as a people who belonged to God. More important is the message that God is sending to Egypt and the rest of the world. The God of the Israelites is stronger than Pharaoh's army. God's power is on display, and all will bear witness to the fulfillment of the divine promise to make my name resound throughout the earth. When God declares in chapter 14, verse 18, that the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. We know something dramatic is about to unfold. God is about to receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Suddenly, the massive throng of Israelites led by the angel of God has become Israel's army in verse 19. We are prepared for combat. But instead, we are shown Moses' outstretched hand and the walls of water dividing the sea to the right and to the left. The seabed has become an open path for the Israelites to cross. The parting of the sea in scripture might seem understated compared to the Hollywood version. In verse 22, 
the Israelites entered into the midst of the sea on dry land, with the water as a wall to their right and to their left. But it takes more faith to reflect on that parting without the full color screen and the magnificent orchestral score. First of all, it's night and the Egyptians are nearby. The unseen but familiar danger must have been terrifying. Second, they were not to fight the Egyptians. Remember that God was leading them on a circuitous route to avoid having to fight other people as they crossed occupied land. The Israelites were to wait for God to deliver them, and that must have been difficult given their dire situation. God is protecting them with the cloud pillar, and Moses is doing God's work with his hands stretched out over the sea so that the end result of God's power is evident to the Israelites as they walk to the other side of the sea between two walls of water. Then things get even more dramatic as the Egyptians pursue them. The chariots get bogged down, and they turn to flee back to Egypt in the face of God's power. Once again, the Israelites can see God's power through Moses as he stretches out his hand to close the sea, covering the Egyptians. Verse 28 tells us that not a single one of them escaped. These events are memorialized in the canticles of chapter 15. Even though verse 1 tells us that then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord, apparently soon after being delivered from Pharaoh's clutches. That doesn't mean that we've got Exodus the musical breaking out on the seashore. The thousands did not break into song as one voice. Canticles are ritualized public prayers in poetic form that laud actions or behaviors that have biblical roots. The song does not recount the events as they evolved in chapter 14. In fact, if you didn't have the chapter 14 material, it might be difficult to figure out just what was being memorialized among the lengthier praise passages. We have the horse and chariot being cast into the sea in verse 1, and a reprise of that action with a bit more information in verse 4 with the chariots and the army being hurled into the sea. They are covered by the sea in verse 5, they sank like lead in verse 10, and the earth swallowed them in verse 12. But the events are not the point of the canticle. The events just give shape to the praise that is offered to the Lord for this demonstration of his power and its relationship of other biblical demonstrations. Over and over, God is identified as the agent of power. He is triumphant in battle in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. And again in verse 7, in your great majesty you overthrew your adversaries. God is so large in his power and his saving actions so impressive that the song seems to be saying, look, look, isn't it just amazing what our God has done? The words may be ritualistic, but the images are shattering in their momentum. In fact, the whole tone and pace of the canticle seems to rise from one glorious encounter to encompass all of creation. From the horse and chariot being cast into the sea, the song moves to a larger image of God being greater than any other gods in verse 11. 
and eventually to his power over the rest of the world in verse 14 where we read, the peoples heard and quaked, including the soon to be encountered Philistia and Edom and Moab and Canaan. The verses with Miriam leading the singing and dancing with her tambourine provide an additional measure of joy to the soaring praises of the canticle. These are people who are so grateful and so happy to be free of their captives that they sing and dance secure in the knowledge that no Egyptian will be coming out of the sea after them. They are just as secure in the knowledge that their God is all-powerful. Scholars suggest Miriam's canticle came first and then Moses' song grew out of it. Following on the heels of this lyrical moment of unabashed praise for their God, the people are already discouraged. They're thirsty and we get one of the early murmuring scenes that permeate the Exodus. Remember that the Israelites murmured about being led into the desert to die at the hands of Pharaoh's army. But it didn't happen. God saved them. Now they're thirsty and murmuring again as though the Lord has abandoned them. God provides fresh water for them, but only after Moses appeals to God and physically takes action. How did the Red Sea part? Moses held out his hand. How does the water become fresh? Moses throws a particular piece of wood into the bitter water, making it fresh. Terence Fretham explains that God works in and through human and natural agencies. Moses is not God. And we never get the impression that the people confuse his actions with some power innate in Moses. It's always clear that Moses consults God, and God provides Moses with an answer that will meet the people's needs. However, their needs are greater than simply thirst. They are asked to keep God's commandments and statutes, to listen to God and do right. If they do these things, God will protect them. Safety is important at this point because they have been unsafe under the Egyptians for so long. But the desert is not a safe place, and the murmuring will continue long after they leave the safety of Elam with its 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees that closes the 15th chapter. One wonders how many of those who walked out of Egypt would have been content to stay at Elam. As we know, contentment was not the goal. Not then, not now.